Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. One year ago, world leaders, policymakers and climate activists gathered at a cluster of conference halls in Glasgow. Friends, it's an honour to speak to you today for the first time as COP president. And I want to thank my dear friend... They were there to discuss action on climate change. The summit was the fifth since the Paris Agreement was made in 2015. And the first where governments were required by that pact to increase their commitments to dealing with the climate crisis. The collective aim of the Paris Agreement was to try to limit global warming by the end of the century to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. With temperatures already about 1.2 degrees warmer than the time of the Industrial Revolution, the slogan for the COP26 summit in Glasgow was Keep 1.5 Alive. But analysis published during COP26 concluded that under the commitments that had been made thus far by governments, the world would warm by approximately 2.5 degrees Celsius. And so, after two weeks of speeches, meetings and backroom deals, the Glasgow Climate Pact was made. As you have noted, it's also vital that we um, protect this package. Countries agreed to phase down coal. Rich countries promised to help poorer ones decarbonise their economies and adapt to a warming world. And everyone pledged to come back within a year, armed with even more ambitious national goals. So, on November the 6th, 2022, the United Nations COP27 summit will kick off in Egypt. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. For the next four weeks, we'll be covering COP27 and all things climate. We'll put our in-house climate experts back in the hot seat as they report from the summit in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. Today, we'll explore the issues that are set to define this year's meeting. With climate reparations expected to be high on the agenda, we'll ask whether rich countries will actually compensate more vulnerable ones for the loss and damage caused by climate change. First, though, 
in the 12 months since COP26, it's been hard to ignore what's at stake. Europe is in the grip of a fierce heat wave, with many countries across the continent experiencing record temperatures. Wildfires are burning in different parts of the continent. Deadly flooding across Pakistan is estimated to have caused more than $10 billion worth of damage. Now, the death toll has now surpassed one. Rescuers in Brazil racing against time in a desperate search for survivors after flash floods and mudslides turned the city of Petropolis into a disaster zone. In China, authorities are battling one of the worst droughts seen in more than 50 years. Falling river levels have left hydroelectric power stations unable to produce enough energy. Once very rare extreme weather events seem to be getting more common. Scientists know that climate change is a factor. At the same time, Russia's invasion of Ukraine eight months ago has left Europe deep in an energy crisis. Time is running out for Europe to contain soaring natural gas prices. Russia was the continent's main provider until it invaded Ukraine earlier this year. In the tumult, climate change seems to have fallen down the list of priorities for the world's biggest and most powerful countries. Last week, the United Nations Environment Programme, or UNEP, published its annual report on the world's so-called emissions gap. That's a census of how countries are really doing when it comes to reducing their emissions of greenhouse gases. The report was a reminder that despite all the talk, the world is very far away from achieving the 1.5 degrees Celsius target set by the 2015 Paris Agreement. It's hard to stay optimistic when the prospects for the world's climate look so dire. But to help me find a way through the gloom are Katrine Brahik, The Economist's environment editor, and Vijay Vaithiswaran, our Global Energy and Climate Innovation Editor. Now, you might recognise both of them as stars of the To A Lesser Degree podcast, which covered COP26 last year. They'll be joining me for the next four episodes of Babbage. Vijay, Katrine, thank you both for joining me. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here, Alok. It's fantastic to join you again. Katrine, let me start with you. Um, you cover this stuff in and out every day. How would you characterise 2022 in terms of, you know, the kind of action and attention on climate change? So we're kind of at a strange moment now. We've got, on the one hand, this really sort of shrill message for action on climate change, it's now or never. And on the other hand, a lot of attention being spent elsewhere, quite understandably, obviously. We've had a war in Ukraine massive energy crisis, food crisis, economic crisis. So politicians are quite understandably preoccupied. So I think we've moved away from that momentum that was gathered at COP26. But at the same time in the background, there's quite a lot that's going on and that is positive. So it's sort of balancing this push and pull situation right now. And Vijay, you spent a lot of this year looking at how to keep climate ambition alive during, you know, the global energy crisis, war in Ukraine, etc. And we'll talk about those things later in the series. But as you get on your way to COP in Egypt, how are you feeling about it all? So it's a mixed bag, isn't it? 
if you just look at the headlines, obviously the the news is a bit gloomy. The world looks like it's headed to recession, certainly big parts of it. We have inflation and high interest rates. Those things are going to be challenges when we think about investing in clean energy and resilience and the sorts of things that we need to do to deal with climate with urgency. And also in the last 12 months, we've seen an uptick in the use of oil, gas, and coal as people have tried to cope with the European crisis, for example. But on the other hand, I do think there is some important other, maybe less observable kinds of positive news. Maybe it's me looking for straws in the wind, but one of them is the continued expansion of renewables and investments in technological innovations of climate tech. The other is there is good news on governments promoting good policies on climate change and climate investment in America, in Europe, and in India for very different reasons and very different ways that I think could prove tailwinds to seeing better and more aggressive action next year. Katrine, the motto of last year's COP was to keep 1.5 alive. When we spoke on the show earlier this year, you said that the 1.5 degree target was, quote, fading into the distance. I mean, realistically, what do you think? Is it still possible? I think realistically, we have to be honest about the fact that with somewhere between 1.1 and 1.3 degrees of global warming already in the can, as it were, and temperatures continuing to rise every single year. The 1.5 degree mark is going to be passed. The Met Office had some predictions earlier this year saying that there was something on the order of a 50% chance, I think it was just below that, of us seeing 1.5 at some point before 2026 as a single year. Actually passing it consistently will take longer, but it's certain that we will see that milestone be passed. We will have some in-depth coverage of this later this week, so listeners should look out for that. Um, The big question now is whether or not it's possible to then bring it back down. Having overshot the 1.5 degree target, are there things that can be done in the decades that follow to bring temperatures back down to 1.5? I mean, I remember being in Paris uh, back in 2015 when that agreement was signed and the gavel went down. I remember video screens with Al Gore hugging the famed economist uh, Nick Stern. I mean, everyone seemed really happy about it. But in in the cold light of day now, do you think it was ever even realistic back then? It was a huge stretch. The climate scientists who were actually running the numbers on that at the time, we're saying quite clearly that that it was very difficult. The models showed that it was basically impossible unless you had large amounts of negative emissions. These are technologies or, or even just nature-enhancing schemes to suck CO2 out of the atmosphere in volumes that didn't exist at the time that still don't exist today. But I think the thing that's really important to remember is that the Paris Agreement text does not just say... or bust. The Paris Agreement text says that governments will strive to limit global warming to well below two degrees above pre-industrial temperatures and that they'll do their darndest to head towards 1.5. So it's actually a bit of a sliding scale between 1.5 and 2. It's also really important to remember that, and this is becoming a bit of a mantra in climate circles, but it's very true, every fraction of a degree matters. So the climate impacts at 1.6 degrees are slightly worse than at 1.5, but they're better than at 1.7 or 1.8 and onwards. So even though I think 
now really the time has come for a bit of realism about this 1.5 degree target. That doesn't mean give up on everything. The communication is really quite difficult when you're looking at sliding scales, shifting goalposts, however you want to talk about it. Vijay, do you think it's still important to have goals? For example, the 1.5 figure, even if as you and Katrina and others of the economists decide that actually these things might not be possible. I mean, do you think there's any danger in terms of just abandoning these goals psychologically or for behaviours that people enact around the world? I think we need to be able to hold two opposing thoughts in our head at the same time. On the one hand, we need big ambition. We need global coordination. We need joined up thinking. I mean, climate change is the ultimate global long-term problem facing humanity. So we need that aspiration and that coming together that the UN process with all of its many, many flaws represents. It's necessary. But we can't confuse that process and the ambitions that are expressed there and the sometimes utopian ideals that are put forward on that global scale as substitutes for the hard work of actually getting stuff done. And that is the other part of the brain which needs to understand and recognize that solutions will emerge in a messy, bottom-up fashion. That's the nature of nation states. That's the nature of how industries work. That's the nature of how societal change happens. It's the nature of innovation. So that's why I say you have to take a a broader view of this than a a binary. That goal, 1.5, we didn't make it, therefore it's all over. I don't think that's the right way to look at it. I agree with Vijay. And actually, we're at this strange moment where the political process, and in particular, the the sort of mega international geopolitics seem to be stalled or at least, you know, faltering. There's a lot that's happening outside those circles, and that's pushing things forward. And we're used to saying none of this is ever enough. But we're so much further along than we were when I started reporting on this stuff, you know, a couple decades ago. At the time, we were talking about four, five, or even more degrees of warming. Now we're realistically looking at somewhere between two and a half and three, and and possibly with, you know, future tech advancements less than that. So as Vijay puts it very nicely, these two things, these two opposing forces are both true. Vijay, what do you think about COP27? I mean, do you have a sort of thought about what might come out of it? Yeah, you know, I've been canvassing people getting ready to go there as I myself and packing my suitcases. There's three schools of thought. One, nothing will happen. You know, nothing much anyway. There is another school of thought that argues that this is going to be a disaster. There's a potential that things could really go off the rails. And it would happen perhaps in the following way, that this is COP that's taking place in Africa. Some people are calling it the African COP. It's in Egypt, of course. And one of the things that's high on the agenda is to push the developed world to pay for loss and damage. This is the phraseology that's used in effect for reparations for past sins committed in in offending the environment through burning coal and other fossil fuels, but also for future damages at parts of the world like Africa that emit very little of the global greenhouse gases, but will suffer a lot of the damage. And so there's a moral outrage that will be expressed. And so you could imagine this becoming a poisonous political environment, which makes progress impossible on anything else. But There is a third school of thought, one that I subscribe to, and that is, I think we might see some useful progress on innovative financing mechanisms, for example, to try to direct much needed capital to the emerging world to invest in things like renewable energy and other forms of adaptation resilience that might actually lead to some meaningful progress. Vijay, Katrine, thank you both very much. Now, the debates on loss and damage, which Vijay just um, talked about there, will be prominent at this year's COP. Will countries that are vulnerable to the effects of climate change make any progress 
on holding rich countries to account. That's coming up. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Today on Babbage, we're looking ahead to the UN's next climate summit, starting at the end of this week, COP27. What will feature on the agenda won't actually be announced until the first day of the conference. But many people are expecting that one key item will be money for loss and damage. No region is untouched and we ain't seen nothing yet. The hottest summers of today may be the coolest summers of tomorrow. That's Antonio Guterres, the Secretary-General of the United Nations, as he opened the UN General Assembly's meeting in New York in September. It's high time to move beyond endless discussions. Vulnerable countries need meaningful action. Loss and damage are happening now, hurting people and economies now, and must be addressed now, starting at COP27. 80% of the greenhouse gas emissions driving climate change, which are already in the atmosphere, have come from the G20 group of countries. This is a fundamental question of climate justice, international solidarity and trust. Poorer countries, such as the low-lying Pacific Islands, often experience the effects of climate change first. So-called loss and damage funding is intended to be a payment from the rich countries, which have caused the historic emissions, to more vulnerable ones. So in the climate negotiations, loss and damage has been established as one of the three pillars which climate policy needs to deal with, adaptation, mitigation and loss and damage. Freddie Otto is a senior lecturer in climate science at Imperial College London. She's an expert in the relatively new science of working out whether specific extreme weather events are linked to human-induced climate change. There is only a kind of working definition of loss and damage, and that is those losses and damages that are occurring from extreme weather events or also changes in seasonality or any other kinds of climate-related losses and damages that would not have occurred if it wasn't for man-made climate change. So, say, if you have... This heat wave we had in London earlier this year, where we had about 40 degrees, about 3,000 people died there. And if it wouldn't have been for climate change, temperatures would have been a lot lower, and so a lot fewer people would have died. And so those additional dead people are losses. Providing help after an extreme weather event might sound like a fairly standard bit of foreign aid. But when it's recast as a matter of liability and compensation rather than a gift, it becomes much more controversial. 
there is no official definition of what loss and damage is. And that is deliberate, because if you would define loss and damage, you would very, very quickly get into the questions about compensations and reparations, which are, of course, politically highly difficult to discuss. Those difficult political discussions that Freddie mentioned have been going on for a number of years. In the 1990s, when the text of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change was being drawn up, a group of low-lying island countries had proposed the creation of an international insurance fund. This would compensate those low-lying countries for the damage caused by rising sea levels in the future. The suggestion wasn't included in the final text, but the idea never went away. In 2015, at the talks that culminated in the adoption of the Paris Agreement, developing countries again wanted a strong clause on money for loss and damage. In the end, Article 8 of the Paris Agreement recognised, quote, the importance of averting, minimising and addressing loss and damage. But that article lacked detail. Exactly how anyone would address loss and damage was pushed to a future discussion. In 2021, COP26 in Glasgow saw Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, put the issue high up on the agenda. She recognised the costs of Scotland's industrialisation. That is a source of pride to us, but it should also be a real cause for reflection. For a very, very long time, we have enjoyed all of the material benefits of the carbon emissions that are causing climate change. As a result, she pledged a fund for loss and damage. Scotland is seeking to lead by example. Our Climate Justice Fund was the first in the world. We have recently taken the decision to double the value of that and we're determined that it will help address loss and damage. Of course, I recognise that in a global context, our fund is very small, but it is nevertheless important and through it we are acknowledging head-on these fundamental issues of international fairness. By the end of the summit, she had increased Scotland's one-off payments for loss and damage to £2 million, which is around US$2.3 million. That was in the hope that other countries would follow suit with larger payments. They didn't. But the pressure is now mounting on developed countries. Denmark's government, for example, recently pledged just over $13 million for developing countries that have suffered damage from climate change. Loss and damage in the political sense is very much about the global north taking on its responsibility. That's Freddie Otto again. It's not just global north countries relabeling what they are doing. It is a recognition and a financial recognition of the historic responsibility. We know very well the historic emissions from all the countries in, in the world. 25% of the historic emissions are due to the US, then 6% or 5% because of the UK, then 6 or 5 because of Germany, other European countries, and the whole of the African continent is only responsible for less than 4%. 
these numbers are very well known, and they show just who caused the problem historically. What makes this already contentious area of financing even more complicated, though, is the question of to what extent can you actually blame industrialized countries for specific damage? Here's where the work of Freddie and her colleagues comes in. Being able to attribute weather events to climate change could be useful for gauging how much the biggest historic polluters should pay, if an international framework for loss and damage were to be set up. When an extreme weather event occurs, we observe one possible realization of all the weather events that can happen in the climate we live in today, and so. The first thing we need to do is what are the other possible events that can occur. So, what is possible weather in the world we live in today? And to do that, we can use climate models, which are the same models as as also are used for the weather forecast, and and find out. And then we might find that what we have just experienced is a one in ten year event in the world we live in today. And then, because we know very well how many greenhouse gases have been emitted since the beginning of the industrial revolution, we can take these greenhouse gases out of the atmospheres of the climate models, and so then simulate possible weather in a world without climate change. And then we might find that the same event would have been only a one in a hundred year event in this world without climate change, and because the only difference between the two worlds. Are the greenhouse gases? We can attribute this difference to climate change. So we can say this event has been made ten times more likely because of climate change, or we could find that a heat wave that is today forty degrees would have been only thirty-six degrees without climate change. We have done this kind of science now. I would say in earnest for the last five to ten years. So there are over five hundred attribution studies of individual events, and that also means that even without doing an attribution study, we do know that and how much climate change affects heat waves or heavy rainfall events or where droughts are affected. And I think it is that kind of global assessment on all these individual studies that can inform loss and damage. Will COP twenty seven finally give the issue more prominence? The head of the UN certainly hopes so. As part of this push, Antonio Guterres even made some suggestions on how highly industrialized economies could pay for loss and damage financing. Polluters must pay, and today I'm calling on all developed economies to tax the windfall profits of fossil fuel companies. Those funds should be redirected in two ways: to countries suffering loss and damage caused by the climate crisis, and to people struggling with rising food and energy prices. Excellencies, let's tell it like it is: our world is addicted to fossil fuels, and it's time for an intervention. We need to hold fossil fuel companies and their enablers to account. Vijay Vaithiswaran and Katrine Breik are back with me to discuss all of this, and we're also joined by Gavin Jackson. Gavin is an economics correspondent at the Economist, and he'll be at COP27 reporting on climate financing. Gavin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Alec. Gavin, we just heard Antonio Guterres there, the head of the UN, suggesting that 
Rich countries could use windfall taxes to fund a proposed loss and damage pot. Um, could this realistically actually happen? So one potential model for a loss and damage fund would be the International Oil Pollution Compensation Fund, which was this intergovernmental body set up in the 1990s to compensate victims of oil spills. And that's funded by a levy on oil importers. So if you're a refinery or something like that and you rely on the seaborne oil trade, you have to put a levy into this pot and then it compensates in the event of some spill that's not covered by the ship's liability. So in principle, you could imagine a similar scheme working for climate change. Airlines, fossil fuel companies, whoever pays into this pot and then it's distributed in the event of a disaster. In reality, though, I think it's not going to happen because a lot of the governments where these fossil fuel companies are based have already sort of pegged the windfall taxes for their own citizens. You know, they've got this cost of living crisis. They've got high fuel prices. And I think that's really the heart of this issue of, of loss and damage is just the political inconvenience of having to take money from your own citizens to give it to someone else. Vijay, the world is entering in, in many parts a sort of dire economic um, stress. Do you think that politics will just get in the way of setting up these kinds of long-term funds for loss and damage? I, I think if it's framed in the way that it's being proposed, that is, it's a sort of a reparations payment as punishment for past misdeeds, I, I don't see any way it can be solved politically in, in the capitals of the rich world. On the other hand, if we ask a, a different kind of question, that is, if we say that there is a huge financing gap for the kind of transformation of the global economy, particularly in emerging markets, it's needed in solar, in wind, in grid-scale batteries, in various forms of new kinds of construction, in green steel, in hydrogen. These are trillion-dollar industries of the future that are going to be developed. And there are places like India that could have advantages in these markets. That is, it could be very attractive for investors. And I think that's really the biggest win that we could provide as rich countries for, for the developing world. I don't think any pot of money that actual reparations fund is set up would be big enough to actually deal with loss and damages, in my view. Gavin, you're our finance man here. Help me understand this. I can understand the sort of meanings difference between loss and damage funding and something like aid. But is it just semantics? Is the money all still coming from the same place and going to the same place? How do you see this as, as flows of money? Well, at the moment, there really isn't any flow of money. Well, when it, hopefully when it happens then, <laughs> this theoretical flow of money. Well, I think, I mean, a lot of it could just come through ordinary development aid. So rich countries' development aid could then become loss and damage funding instead. But the model here really is to come up with something that looks a lot like insurance. The idea is there's a need for risk sharing in that some parts of the world will be hit by risk. We don't know what, we don't know when, we don't know how much by, but they need some way of spreading that loss between different people and not suffering from all of it themselves. So that's the basic idea is an insurance fund. But there's a lot of problems with applying that financial idea to climate change. The first is, as we heard earlier, the issue with attributing damages specifically to climate change. And second, there's the fairness issue. If the countries that are most at risk are paying the insurance premiums, there's no transfer from the people who cause climate change, the rich countries, to the poor countries. They're just paying into the fund that's going to be used for themselves. And there's a bit of a problem here as well that we don't really know if there could be a private insurance market here. Because we don't know how big the costs are going to be. You know, there's no models. To, well, there are models, but they're just models. There's no historic basis to go what the losses may be. There's all that problem. And then the rich countries don't want to put in because they don't want to open the door to claims of liability in court cases and so on. And then finally, we've been talking about this in terms of natural disasters. But a lot of the losses and damage are going to come from very slow-moving crises. So sea levels gradually getting higher, that kind of thing. Temperatures gradually getting warmer. What's the trigger for insurance payout in that case? 
Katrine, Gavin just mentioned climate lawsuits as well there. You've been reporting on this this year, haven't you? Um, I mean, what's the progress on that? I mean, are people making headway to sort of get people to notice effects of climate change that way? One of the cases that I've reported on is a fairly well-known case of a Peruvian farmer called Saul Luciano Luya, who is suing RWE, Germany's massive utility company, for the fact that basically the glaciers above his hometown of Juarez are melting and creating a huge flood risk that could take out his farm and his house. Now, it's not strictly speaking loss and damage because actually it's more an adaptation case. In this case, he's claiming for funds to help with flood defences. But it takes up this idea of attribution and starts to look at how you apportion blame. Elsewhere, we've seen this year the conclusion of a case that was brought to the UN Human Rights Committee, and this was the Torres Strait Islanders in Australia, claimed that basically their right to live, to survive on their islands, was being transgressed by climate change, and they were demanding reparations. And the UN Human Rights Committee has actually ordered the Australian government to pay out funds to the Torres Strait Islanders as a result of the impacts of climate change. Now, the Australian government has yet to respond to that. We don't know if that money will flow. The UN Human Rights Committee is, you know, it's still the UN. It doesn't have much teeth, etc. But we're starting to see these things filter through to the courts. Now, I wouldn't say that that means we're suddenly going to see millions or let alone billions of money um, flowing towards developing countries because everybody's being sued. What it potentially could do, and I think the hope of the people who bring these lawsuits, is that it will increase the pressure and start to make the point that there is a liability issue. Gavin, if all of this conversation does make it to the COP27 agenda, what do you think a successful outcome might be for the more vulnerable nations? Previous COPs have resulted in various different mechanisms or projects for sort of making progress on this loss and damage issue. And that includes the Warsaw International Mechanism in 2013, the Fiji Risk Clearinghouse in 2017, and the Santiago Network in 2019. And so many of these bodies, sort, they probably do useful work. I mean, there's all kinds of non-financial things they do, like early warning systems and sharing technical expertise and all that kind of thing. And I'm sure they're worthy. But they also have a bit of a whiff of sort of displacement activity to me. They're a way of making it look as though something's happening without actually having to spend any money. And I think patience is now running out on that. At the last COP in Glasgow, there was this Glasgow dialogue on loss and damage, which was meant to be a two-year-long process to eventually result in maybe a framework for coming up with some financing. So I think what would be a successful COP this time would be for there to actually be money on the table or a realistic prospect of there eventually being some money on the table. I think that's a hope more than an expectation, but I think that would be what a successful COP looks like. Well, let's see what happens in the next couple of weeks. And uh, thank you very much for explaining everything. Before I let you go, though, uh, I thought it might be a good time to point listeners towards climate coverage that you have enjoyed from The Economist. Uh, Gavin, anything you've read recently that uh, you'd like to share? Yeah, um, there was a piece in the Europe section that was very good looking at the importance of connecting Europe together. So with a proper Europe-wide electricity grid, connecting all the different parts to it. So with renewables, you know, they're intermittent because of the sun doesn't always shine, wind doesn't always blow. But connecting grid together gives you that flexibility. 
It's fantastic. I remember writing something about this in 2006 where you were going to have high voltage direct current lines between the Sahara and Iceland because Iceland has got geothermal, the Sahara's got lots of sun. So connect these things up together. Electricity too cheap to meter. I, I, I'm glad it's happening 20 years later. Well, not, well, not quite happening yet. <laughs> well, excellent. Of course, a special introductory offer for The Economist can be accessed at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Gavin, thank you so much. And I'm sure we'll hear from you again as you report from COP27. Thank you. Thank you. Vijay, Katrine, I want to wrap up with both your thoughts on how the next four weeks could have an impact on climate action in the future. Vijay, you know, at the beginning of the show, you gave me quite a lot of optimism, actually, about the way things might go, which I wasn't expecting, I have to say. So, I mean, should we be optimistic? I mean, is is that what I should take away from what you're saying about the next few weeks? Look, the very fact that negotiators are coming together, whatever happens at this gathering in Sharm el-Sheikh, is, I think, a good sign. Let's remember, if we look at the arc of history in the last century, during the nuclear arms talks between the US and USSR during the height of the Cold War, negotiators met year after year. They'd often walk away with nothing, but then every now and again, they'd have a big breakthrough that meant everything. So I would tend to see this in that arc of a necessary process, even if it ends up frustrating with some setbacks in Egypt, it's part of something bigger. The other reason to be hopeful is I always come back to what's happening on the ground. We've just had the new report from the International Energy Agency, the World Energy Outlook, pointing out that because of remarkable expansion of clean energy deployment in the world, which is itself the result of a precipitous collapse in the cost of new solar in particular, we're finding that this is the cheapest way to make electricity in most places in the world. It's cheaper than new coal, it's cheaper than new gas, certainly at today's gas prices. And finding that the clean energy revolution that we needed to have started 20 years ago is actually beginning to happen with some pace and intensity. So Vijay, you're a long arc of history bending towards the good guy, which is good. It's a positive, optimistic look on things. Katrine, how about you? Do you have a sense of what success looks like at COP27? I mean, in your opinion, the shift is focused away from things like the 1.5C target, which, you know, you said is not tenable anymore. What kinds of measures might we expect or want from this COP? Yeah, so first of all, I, I kind of agree with Vijay in terms of the long arc of history shifting in the right direction. I feel like I need to counterbalance almost by necessity his optimism here. It's not shifting fast enough. I think success at this COP, because it's a small COP, it's not a major COP, kind of just looks like maintaining momentum. A successful COP would be one that doesn't utterly break down and result in complete catastrophe, say over something like loss and damage, where frankly, at the minute, we know that the global geopolitics are very, very tense, particularly over issues like adaptation funding and loss and damage funding. So that could be deepened by the negotiations in COP, that lack of trust. And that would be a bad thing. I'll be watching the loss and damage very, very closely, mainly because although it's been ticking over in the background for, well, frankly, as long as these talks have been going on, it's the first time that it's going to be, I think, possibly discussed in a more open and frank way. It'll be an interesting one to watch. Okay, well, let's leave the conversation and predictions there. Next week, we'll look at how some places around the world 
are already having to adapt to climate change. Adaptation is, of course, another big topic expected to feature in the COP27 conference. Catherine, Vijay, I look forward to discussing that with you next week. Thanks a lot. See you then. Thank you. Thanks also to Freddie Otto and The Economist's Gavin Jackson. And, of course, thank you for listening to Babbage. Later this week, you'll be able to read Katrine's essay on why the 1.5 degrees Celsius target is looking so impossible to achieve. And look out for our regular reporting from the summit on our website. The link to subscribe to all of our content is economist.com slash podcast offer. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin, with mixing by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Cha, and in London, this is The Economist. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.